I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're excited to welcome back Barry Burden, professor of political science and director of the Elections Research Center, to talk about the upcoming midterm elections when Americans will return to the polls for the first time since the 2020 presidential election and the January 6th insurrection. Both parties are battling for control of the House, and the polls are tightening in key races around the country. We enjoyed our conversation and learned so much. We hope you will too. Let's start off with talking a little bit about where we are with respect to the most recent polls and what the midterms are looking like for Biden and the Democrats, as well as Republicans, less than two weeks out from these elections. What are the key races that you're watching and which races do you think will determine control of the House and Senate? Well, things are not looking good for Biden and the Democrats, but that was to be expected with a Democratic president. The historic pattern is that the White House party tends to lose seats in midterm elections. So here we are with a Democratic president and Democratic Congress. And when there's unified control of the federal government, the losses tend to be larger in midterm elections. So Democrats are set up to take some hits this year. They're almost certain to lose the House of Representatives. They only have about a three-seat margin to keep their majority. Typical pattern is about two to three dozen seats lost for the majority party. I think Republicans are in a very good position to pick up enough to be the majority and maybe have a little cushion there as well. What we don't know is what range is reasonable. Will Republicans pick up 10 seats and have just enough to be a majority, or it will be more like 20 or 30 I think there's a wide variety there, but all of them essentially put the Republicans in power. The Senate is more complicated and I think harder to figure out. Smaller number of races there, only 34 Senate seats up. Republicans are defending more of them. 20 of them are GOP Senate held, only 14 by Dems. Uh, But the Democrats are still in some trouble there. There are probably four or five states that will determine which way the Senate goes. Uh, Today, the Senate's 50-50 with Kamala Harris being a tie-breaking vote, and she set a record for the number of tie-breaking votes by a vice president. Uh, She may continue that line of work uh, next year, or she may be out of business. Uh, You know, Wisconsin is one of the states that gets a lot of attention for its Senate race, but I think even more competitive are Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, um, maybe Arizona is in the mix. It seems to be coming online lately with the polls moving against Mark Kelly there. Uh, Those are mostly open seats or swing states uh, where there's a vulnerable senator. I would say those are all toss-ups. And so if those all swing in one direction, you can imagine a party getting to 53 or 54 seats could be could be either party. I think the the Senate has gone gone from looking more favorable to the Democrats to now shifting to really up in the air. So it's a wait and see right now. It is a wait and see. That's why we hold the elections. <laughs> the polls are not perfect. Uh, it's a difficult task to even figure out who will be the voters and then to ask them how they're going to vote when they may not know the answers to those questions. Uh, and I think once you're within a point or two, the pollsters should probably just throw up their hands and say, we don't know what's going to happen. We'll count the votes and find out. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, again, thank you for being here. It's great to be able to talk to you about all these things. 
I'm curious what's at stake for President Biden as he contemplates whether he's going to run for a second term, because as we know, the midterms are historically a referendum on the president. How do you think those outcomes might impact Biden in the short or long term? Well, there's a lot at stake for him. Every, everything Democrats want to do in Washington will either continue for the next two years or come to a dead stop. Uh, he's actually been really successful as a president in pushing through his agenda some big items, things like the Inflation Reduction Act, poorly named piece of legislation that does much more than deal with inflation. It actually doesn't deal with inflation very much. It does a lot of other things, uh, or student loan forgiveness, or a whole variety of things, gun control, just a wide variety of policy achievements. And he's appointed a number of justices, uh, one justice to the U.S. Supreme Court and a number of federal judges. All of that will come to a grinding halt if Republicans gain even one seat. So there's a lot at stake for the Democrats in the Biden agenda over the next two years at least. I don't think there's much at stake for him in terms of deciding whether to run for re-election. Obama, when he was in his first term, his first midterm election, lost 63 seats in the House. It's one of the biggest losses in the last half century. And he looked like he was dead on arrival, came right back and won that re-election in 2012 pretty easily over Mitt Romney. So it's sort of a funny thing about American politics now. Each election doesn't really tell you much about the next one. And we do sort of jump back and forth between midterms and presidentials. I think Biden has a decision to make for himself. He's 79 years old. He would be in his 80s as a second term president, by far the oldest president. Uh, his physical health seems good. His sort of verbal you know, auditory skills seem like they're slipping a bit. And he will just have to decide whether he's got another four years in him and he thinks the party is on board. But I don't think it'll be determined by what happens in this midterm. So going off that last question about Biden's performance and what's at stake for him, what do you think the stakes are for each party um, coming out of these midterms? Um, there's been a lot of discussion now if the Republicans take back the House, they'll have more oversight ability and could potentially like swing new cycles and things like that. So what do you think we will see from a Republican majority or a Democrat majority? Uh, good questions. Uh, tough to say. As I say, the Democrats have accomplished a lot of what they have wanted to do over the last two years. Things they have not pushed through include a big voting rights bill that they were interested in from day one of Biden's tenure. I don't think that will come back and be successful, even if Democrats hold the Congress. They have the problem in the Senate of the filibuster, which is stopping a lot of the big items, items that are not budget items that require 60 votes to pass. I don't think there are enough Democrats in the Senate, even if they pick up some seats, to do away with the filibuster for non-budget items. So I think voting rights and some of the other big stuff, more of the Green New Deal, things that didn't make it into the Inflation Reduction Act, probably don't happen. So you know, with Democrats in power, they will continue to appoint federal judges and maybe, maybe another Supreme Court justice. Probably not a lot of new policy accomplishments, is my guess. Probably not a lot of new spending. They've engaged in a lot of big spending programs. But it's more likely to be a kind of holding pattern until we get to the next presidential. If Republicans come in, I think Biden and the GOP will see eye to eye on almost nothing for two years. Republicans will probably pass bills they want to send to Biden as kind of a message to show their difference in their, their positions. There will be some kind of tax cut or uh, inflation package or spending reductions. Something like that will go to his desk. He'll veto those, is my guess. So probably not a lot accomplished, <laughs> regardless of who's in power. Um, I think with split control, it's going to be uglier because it will be all about posturing for 2024. With Democrats in power, it'll be plodding along, but probably not accomplishing a lot. 
You actually just touched a little bit on uh, the issue of inflation. And a couple of months ago, Democrats were cautiously optimistic about these elections as gas prices started to decline. And Biden and the Democrats had passed some big bills, such as the Inflation Reduction Act, which seemed to be favorable in the public eye. But now, as the elections get closer, we're seeing some of the support start to decline. Most voters seem to be unhappy with Biden and by extension with Democrats. And the Dobbs enthusiasm from the Dobbs decision in the summer seems to be waning. So what's happening and why is this happening now? Well, I think you described it pretty well. It's really just shifting sands in terms of what's important to voters. There, there was some momentum on the Democrat side in the summer and early fall because of the focus on abortion and sort of lessening focus on in inflation and prices. But we've now moved away from that. Dobbs is six months old, and uh, Democrats are trying to prime that as an issue in these final days of the campaign. But it's sort of remarkable in polls, we see relatively small number of people naming abortion as their top issue. And inflation is easier, I think, for people to grasp. It's immediate. You feel it when you pay your rent, when you go to the grocery store, when you put gas in your automobile. Uh, when you buy clothing, anything in people's daily lives is really affected by prices. And I think it's not just the prices, it's all the things in the economy that are weird or uncomfortable right now. Supply chain problems, difficulty hiring people, just sort of all of that is, is laid on whoever is in office, and that is the Democrats. As I mentioned before, because it's unified government, there's no doubt about who's in charge. So if you're unhappy, <laughs> you take it out on the Democrats. To what degree Biden is actually responsible for the inflation, I think objectively is a really open question. There are limited things that government can do to either exacerbate or alleviate inflation. It, it is a worldwide problem at the moment. Uh, but Republicans have pointed to some of the big spending items that have come out of the Biden administration, a lot of the COVID relief, those kinds of things as kind of spurring inflation in a way that wasn't necessary. Um, but it kind of doesn't matter what the objective truth is. Voters feel inflation. They want somebody to solve it. They know that people in government are not making it go away, and so they're inclined to vote against them. So you think that the the kind of waning enthusiasm about abortion being one of the main issues on top of people's minds is just kind of a recency bias issue at this point, where it's been six months since then, other issues have kind of taken its place? I think there are a few reasons that people's attention has shifted. One is the American population has short-term focus, and the media tend to move on to new things. And a lot of other things have happened. There was a raid at Mar-a-Lago, which acquired a bunch of Trump documents and all the fallout and his response to that and the legal proceedings. There's a war in Ukraine happening still, you know, many months on. Uh, and I think Republican candidates around the country have also been successful in drawing attention to issues that work to their advantage, in particular concerns about crime and immigration on top of the inflation economy concerns. Those have really been primed in every Republican ad across the country pretty effectively. And those are places where people are still feeling some anxiety. You know, they're seeing stories about cars being stolen and violent crimes being committed, uh, feeling the prices every day. So it's not hard to elevate that as an issue with some ads. And abortion just falls away, I think. It never really got to number one <laughs> on, the, on the top 10 this year, but even where it was really prominent has been somewhat short-lived. So in your opinion, do you think that more voters are swayed by recent events and newfound political decisions? Or do you think that more emphasis is placed on these fundamental issues that keep recurring election after election? And do you think that these are 
the issues that most voters tend to base their decisions off of. Yeah, so there are a couple ways to think about that. So the election outcome in a couple weeks is going to be the result of voters' choices and concern about issues, and they're thinking about the economy and all of that. So voters have a lot of direct control, obviously. It's a democracy. But it's also driven by who's running for office, who the candidates are. And that was determined a long time ago, was determined in the primaries this summer, was really determined last year Was as candidates were thinking about whether to run or not and get in. And so those candidates were reading the tea leaves about what's 2022 likely to be like. And there were a lot of high quality, promising Republican candidates who saw that 2022 was probably going to be a good year for their party. Time to jump in. A lot of actually wealthy Republicans who could fund their own campaigns, people like Mehmet Oz or others who are kind of connected to financial interest. And that also helps the party by taking the pressure off the fundraising. So part of what voters are responding to is things they see in the political environment. But some of it is just who are the people running in my state or district? Have I heard about this person? Do they seem credible? And I think Republicans have had some trouble with some of their candidates not performing well in some high profile races. But on net, they have a decent batch of people running this year because there was anticipation of what 2022 would be like. And I think that sort of uh, amplifies the normal advantage they would have. So the fundamental forces, kind of the things that are in play, even before we know who the candidates are, if you look back many months, really important. And all of them, all those things would say Republicans are going to make gains. But it also looks like the GOP is probably going to underperform those fundamental factors just a little bit. So even if Democrats lose 15 or 20 seats in the House, they will be sad. But they could actually say they outperformed the expectations based on the fundamentals. And that might be because Dobbs is still playing some role for them. Uh, or the candidate quality is helping them out in some places. So it's a it's a mixture of a lot of things. It's hard to, it's hard to summarize in you know a kind of simple fashion. In light of that kind of um, opportunity for the GOP, which groups of voters look to be increasingly on the fence about supporting the Biden administration during these midterms? Well, Hispanic voters are getting a lot of attention. They get a lot of attention in every cycle because people are wondering about their leanings and the likelihood that Hispanic voters will begin to participate at higher levels. It's never really materialized in any of the way that people expect. Um, But one thing we have seen over the last, say, 10 years is Hispanic voters moving very slightly in the Republican direction from one election cycle to the next, still voting about two thirds of the time or maybe more for Democrats, but just becoming warmer to Republicans. Uh, Even Trump's loss in 2020 Republicans still benefited from higher support from Hispanics, and it was actually non-Hispanic whites who moved in the Democrats' direction. So those are really interesting folks to watch. And there are some states where Hispanic voters are a large share of the population, like Arizona, Nevada, uh, Texas might be in play, Florida. There might be some interesting races potentially in play where Hispanic voters could really make the difference. Hispanic turnout has also lagged other groups, far below that of non-Hispanic whites, below that of African-Americans, below that of Asian-American voters. So there's also been a lot of anticipation about when will the Hispanic voter explosion happen, and it just has not materialized yet. But that's, I think, a group to watch this year. And they're, they're torn a little bit between feelings about Dobbs and abortion and bread and butter economic issues, jobs and education and the economy generally. So that's one to watch. The other one I'm keeping my eye on, especially in Wisconsin, is young voters. Young people tend to vote at lower rates, a lot lower rates than older folks, especially in midterm elections. 
Uh, there is a gender gap at the moment in American politics in terms of the partisan leanings of young people being more Democratic, older people being more Republican. So it's consequential if older people are voting at two or three times the rate of younger voters. Young voters are not enthusiastic about Joe Biden or much of anything at the moment. There, there's a sort of dismay and discontent about a lot of things, but definitely not attracted to the Republican Party in large numbers. So I think higher turnout among young people probably works to the Dems. It definitely works to the Dems' advantage, but maybe not quite as predictably as Democrats would like. Are the Democrats doing anything right now specifically to target that group of young voters? They are. Um, it's a little hard to see sometimes. It's not the same as the regular TV advertising that's used to blitz most of the electorate, especially older voters who watch TV more or mailings or yard signs, those kinds of things. I know that Democrats are advertising in streaming services, in video games. They're using texting, peer-to-peer -peer texting platforms. They are bringing in some celebrity surrogates. Even here in Wisconsin, there have been rallies over the last couple of days with high-profile Democrats coming in. Barack Obama's coming in soon, uh, maybe over the weekend for the Democrats in Milwaukee. So there's some of that kind of last-minute effort by Democrats to get out the vote and because young people start at a very low rate, there's a lot of getting out to be done for young people. So it, it is a bit of a blitz at the moment just to really mobilize young voters, more on the Democratic side, obviously. Why do you think that, that younger voters tend to turn out so little despite being fairly politically active? Opinionated, opinionated yeah. <laughs> uh, there are a bunch of reasons why young people turn out at lower rates and why it's worse in non-presidential elections. One is young people have not voted before, so there's no habit. When you turn 18, you have to learn how to do this for the first time. And that does mean getting registered and knowing where your polling place is, and in some states, how to get an ID to vote. And those are all new costs that you have to figure out as a voter. Older voters like me have been doing this a long time. I don't move frequently, so I vote at the same place, and everything comes to my mailbox, and I have my ID. And there's, there's really no learning or adjustment for older voters who have a habit of doing that. Young voters are not only learning for the first time, but also highly mobile, so moving from one place to another. Here at UW, basically all students move every year, so no one is registered at the correct address when an election rolls around. So there's this kind of constant effort to figure out what you need, and especially moving across state lines, as young people are more likely to do. You have to actually learn about the rules in the new state that you've arrived in and become familiar with the politics in that place. So we have an increasing number of UW students from other states who are eligible to vote but don't really have familiarity with who the candidates are or what the issues are in Wisconsin. So there's that kind of lack of investment or knowledge about the local politics too. So those are important factors. One other that you may not think about is that young people are just less partisan. Partisanship tends to increase as you get older. People become stronger Republicans and stronger Democrats. Who are the most likely voters? The people who have chosen a side and you know are fans of one team and really dislike the other team. And young voters are just much more likely to say they're independent or undecided or something. Even if their votes tend to line up on one side more than the other, they don't feel attached to a party and you really need a team to want to watch the game and be involved. So that's a kind of surprising one, but that's just very consistent over time. Young people are always less partisan and become more so over time. And it's that plus kind of settling down in a place eventually that make the voting habit easier to maintain. Uh, a lot of discussion around these midterms have been around whether or not to trust polling and how relevant and accurate polling science is in the age of Trump. Do you expect that there will be polling errors in these midterms similar to the levels of 
that we saw in 2016 and 2020. Additionally, like what is behind these polling areas that we keep seeing in elections in the last five years? So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the errors this year will not be the magnitude, maybe not even the direction of the errors in 2016 and 2020. Uh, those years were pretty black marks on the polling industry. Uh, nearly all of the polls were skewed or biased in favor of the Democrats, made things look better than they really were. If you remember, in, you may not remember, in Wisconsin in 2016, there was not a single poll from Labor Day to Election Day that showed Trump ahead. And sometimes Clinton was ahead by large margins in those polls. So she felt very comfortable about a victory happening here. And of course, Trump won the state by a narrow margin, but pretty far away from where the average polling suggested things were going to be. And the polls were probably worse in 2020, not only in Wisconsin, which is in both elections, one of the bad ones, but also the national popular vote and some other key swing states. The polls were pretty far off. It seems to be Trump specific because the 2018 midterm elections, the last midterms four years ago, which were in the middle of Trump's term, the polls did very well. The final Marquette poll before the election in Wisconsin had Tony Evers winning by one point. He won by one point. That's pretty good. Uh, and the other polls in the midterm were also pretty good. Um, not in every state. You know, things sometimes go one way or the other in different states. But on average, they were about right. So it seems to be something about having Trump on the ballot, not just him being a presence. Pollsters have not quite figured out what that is. It is not simply not having enough Republicans in the sample, because you can fix that. You can interview more Republicans, or you can weight the sample to make sure that you have the right amounts based on other benchmarks. Uh, for a while, pollsters thought it was not having enough people with low levels of education who identify as Republicans because they were the core Trump supporters and are kind of a hard group to interview. But you can also fix that by either making an effort to interview more of those people or by weighting the sample to try to get it right. There are other things that seem to be correlated with this. There were people who are lower in social trust or maybe less socially oriented, were less likely to do surveys and also more likely to vote for Trump. But even trying to make those adjustments has not really fixed things. So I would say the polling industry is still a little bit at a loss as to what is happening. It's not just telephone polls. It's not internet polls. It's sort of all of them. And not in every state. There are some states that were just right and some were actually the Republicans were overstated a little bit. But on average, um, yeah, the polls have been off. This year, I think we're going to be better. Trump is still a factor on, in people's minds, but not being on the ballot and him not being in office, I think, probably helps things. So let's dive a little bit into the races that are top of mind in the state with Tony Evers in a re-election bid against Tim Michaels and Wisconsin senior Senator Ron Johnson facing re-election against Mandela Barnes. Evers is currently running slightly ahead of Michaels, while Barnes has slipped behind Johnson. Could you discuss these races broadly, but also touch on how the Barnes campaign has fallen behind after starting the summer in the Marquette Law School poll with a large lead over Johnson? Has the Barnes campaign made any messaging mistakes in your eyes, or what is what is the cause of this slip? Yeah, so let's start with the governor's race. I, I would call that a toss-up. Maybe Evers is a very slight favorite. If I had to bet on one, I'd bet on Evers, but that one could go either way. It's not so surprising. I mean, he barely won the election four years ago. He did beat an incumbent in Scott Walker, but he won by one percentage point in a year that was really good for the Democrats. Democrats swept all five statewide races in Wisconsin and won control of Congress and lots of other things nationally. And Evers just eked it out. So we knew he was going to be a vulnerable incumbent this time around. And now the winds are blowing in favor of Republicans, not in favor of Democrats. So he could be the incumbent on the chopping block. We could see two incumbent governors go down in four years. Um, but he's reasonably well-liked. He's not a beloved governor, 
but his polling is not so low that he, you know, you would see that he's automatically in jeopardy. Uh, we are a 50-50 state electorally, and so it's likely to be very close. Uh, Michaels has put a lot of money into his campaign and run a pretty good campaign. So it's, I would say, that one's up for grabs. The, the Senate race is different, and it's a little surprising that in Wisconsin, the two races don't have exactly the same margins. And that's true in some other states, too, like Georgia and Arizona. The governor's races and Senate races are not quite lining up. So there are at least some people splitting their tickets. I think going in on paper, you would say Ron Johnson probably should be the favorite. He's the incumbent. Incumbents get the benefit of the doubt. He's won two prior elections in the state. Uh, it's going to be a good year for Republicans. You'd say, well, the Republican incumbent senator ought to have a lot of advantage. On the other side, I think Johnson is the only Republican running for re-election in the Senate in a state that Trump lost. So he's in a barely blue state. Uh, so that sort of works to his disadvantage. It's a very small victory for Biden, but it is a, it was a blue state in 2020. And Johnson has done a bunch of things in office that I think make him vulnerable as an incumbent. His approval rating has, his favorability rating, approval rating, whatever it is, have dropped in surveys over the last few years as he's become more closely attached to Trump. And he's made some outlandish statements about COVID and climate change and abortion and the 2020 election and the Bidens and those are all things that I think that Democrats anticipated they would use against him in a general election campaign. And that motivated a lot of Democrats to run in the primary. It was a big primary of about 10 Dems who all just wanted to be the nominee because Johnson looked so vulnerable. It's not played out that way. Uh, as the primary happened, Barnes was leading in the polls, but he has lost all of that advantage and is now, I think, pretty clearly behind. That took about six weeks for that shift to happen. Why did that shift happen? One is what we talked about earlier, that Dobbs and the abortion issue have receded, and that was probably lifting up a lot of Democrats over the summer. Uh, the other was that he won a primary against a bunch of other Democrats, and so you come out of that with good feelings. They had been criticizing one another, but also criticizing Johnson, and so he came out of that somewhat unscathed, and that was helpful. Uh, but then he ran into a brick wall of negative advertising about him, especially on television and in mailers, not just from the Johnson campaign, but from other conservative groups that were running ads. Johnson and Barnes have raised a lot of money each, but it's actually outside groups who are spending more than them. So they've sort of, those groups have sort of taken over the campaign in a way. And they really went after Barnes for about six weeks on his position on criminal justice issues broadly, but especially parole and bail. Uh, they found things he said that made him look like he was out of touch or, or weak on crime, and they've used those in advertisements They've gone after him on kind of his personal experience in government, his failure to pay taxes, his positions on immigration and other things. And he really did not have a good defense for those things and has not really offered a direct criticism of Johnson that uses all that controversial stuff that Johnson offered up for Democrats. So I think it's been a messaging failure on Barnes' part and or success on Republican and conservative part in, in defining him. You know, he's been lieutenant governor for four years. He's a U.S. Senate candidate. But coming out of the primary, he was not well known to the electorate. That's just how things are. So he tried to kind of introduce himself in some ads. And I think those were completely buried by the negative ads on the other side. And he's just in the last couple weeks tried to crawl out of that. And uh, there have been a couple debates. Uh, he's now focusing on Johnson more directly, talking about abortion, barnstorming the state. Uh, but I think he's put himself in a hole, and voting is already underway, so there's not a lot of time for him to dig his way out. So to follow up on that a little bit and look more over to the Wisconsin state legislature, Wisconsin obviously a purple state, but 
the legislature here. Some people are talking about whether or not there's a chance of a supermajority. Um, do you see that potentially happening at all? And can you just talk about how Wisconsin's legislature could be so tilted one way when it's a 50-50 state? Yeah. So statewide elections in Wisconsin are almost always up for grabs. Anything that's on the ballot where the whole state is voting, either party has a shot. Control of the state legislature is not up for grabs. It is controlled by Republicans. It has been controlled by Republicans since 2012. And that's largely the result of the districts that are created that work to the Republicans' advantage. Now, some of that advantage is not the Republicans' doing. It's just the geography of the state and where Republican and Democratic voters tend to live. Democrats are concentrated in urban areas like Madison and Milwaukee, some college towns, some other places. It's pretty hard, actually, to draw districts that would spread those Democrats out into a number of other a, a number of districts, sort of carve them up in a way to make Democrats competitive in legislative elections. But then it was Republicans who drew the maps after the 2010 census that went into effect in 2012. And the new maps that are in place for this year's election are basically a repeat of those. The courts got involved and said, and said they didn't want the maps to deviate much from the old ones. So they're stacked towards the GOP because the GOP drew them and one of them stacked with them. And it was a very effective set of maps. So over the last 10 years, while those maps have been in place, sometimes Republicans have done well in the state in like 2014, uh, 2016. Um, sometimes Democrats have done well. Barack Obama won the state. Tammy Baldwin won the state by 10 points. It had no effect on the legislature. It has, it has been about 60%, to, you know, low 60% of the seats in both chambers held by Republicans, and that's going to be true this year. I think they end up there. Um, do they get to supermajorities? I think that's a stretch. It's possible in the state Senate, where for the first time it really looks like they're going to build and maybe get to the number they need. There are only 16 or 17 state Senate seats on the ballot. So, you know, a couple of them going one way or the other can make a big difference. In the assembly, I think it's harder for them to get to that number. That would be 66 Senate seats out of 99, uh, assembly seats out of 99. It's possible, but I think if they do so well this year that Republicans are at the point of getting super majorities, two thirds majorities in both chambers, they're probably also winning the governor's race and the Senate race in which case having a veto-proof supermajority isn't really necessary unless they're going to override the veto of their own Republican governor. That actually doesn't happen in Wisconsin. The legislature has not overridden a gubernatorial veto in many years of either party. So I think Republicans would be plenty happy just to have the good majorities and a Republican governor and go to town on their legislative agenda. And if Evers holds on, then I think that probably means Democrats are doing well enough to keep the GOP from getting to that level. I know that you talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but how big of a role do you think Wisconsin's midterm elections will play on a national level? How might the results here impact the makeup of our federal government and potentially change outcomes on key national issues or legislation? The Senate race here is hugely important to the country. It's actually important to the world. I'm getting emails now almost every day from international election observers or embassies or ambassadors from other countries who want to know what is happening in Wisconsin. They're visiting the state to observe the election here. They realize that everything from our policies in Ukraine to foreign aid to abortion policy to the makeup of the courts to the federal budget to gun control legislation, all of that has to run through the U.S. Senate. And the Johnson seat seemed like one that Democrats might flip. Now seems to be getting away from the Democrats, but I think there's still a possibility that it could turn. Uh, 
that is going to be essential, I think, to deciding whether the Democrats keep their 50 percent plus Kamala Harris majority uh, or maybe pick up one or two or fall below that. At which point, as I mentioned before, I think the Biden agenda just stops. There's like it's hard to think of anything legislatively that Biden and Republicans in the Congress would agree on. Senate's a little different. It's a little more interesting there. And sometimes you get people crossing party lines in the House, not at all. And since Republicans are all but certain to pick up the House, maybe the Senate majority doesn't matter <laughs> so much anymore if Democrats lose the House. But I, I do think the the seat here in Wisconsin is one of about half dozen that will determine the makeup of the Senate. And just looking ahead to 2024, we'll have a presidential race. We don't know if it's going to be Biden. We definitely don't know who the Republican nominee will be. Um, but the Senate seats that are up that year are going to be even more trouble for Democrats because they are ones that were elected in 2018, which was a really good Democratic year. So they had some success, and now those are freshman senators who are going to be vulnerable. So even if Democrats hold on this time around, it's maybe two years, and then they're going to be in a tougher place uh, unless they have a really great presidential election at the top of the ticket. Well, speaking of looking ahead to future elections as well, a recent New York Times poll found that Americans are concerned about the erosion of democracy in general, but they don't seem to really be voting on it. I believe you were interviewed at an article that came out about that poll as well recently. So what do you make of the fact that people aren't voting on the erosion of democracy, especially in the aftermath of January 6th? It's surprising and it worries me. I don't know how an electorate could not be concerned about what's happening to their democratic system. I think there are probably a couple reasons why that's happening. One is there are a lot of things pulling on voters for their attention. Things like inflation and prices we talked about before are just much more immediate and tangible. Democracy is an abstract thing. It's pretty far away. It seems to run on its own. <laughs> We're not really taught as students in civics courses or political science courses even that it's something that needs to be taken care of and tended like a fire. We're taught that it's an, a set of institutions that are created and they just operate on their own. I think a lot of Americans were upset and surprised by the insurrection on January 6th, but don't necessarily connect that to democracy. They view it maybe as an uprising or a riot or protest or something that happened at the Capitol. But understanding that that was the counting of the electoral votes, which came out of controversial lawsuits and protests that, and recounts that happened after the presidential election, and that itself was contested. And it's this whole line of attack on the election system where that became the end point in a way. I don't think people have connected those things. There is a partisan difference on this. Democrats are more concerned about threats to democracy, Republicans less so. That's part of what happens during a campaign season. People tend to retreat to their parties and cling on to the issues that make them feel comfortable and put the other party at some, you know, on the defense. I am not optimistic, but I am hoping <laughs> that we find ways to shore up democracy and make sure that there's public attention on it after we get through this election cycle. On that same note, are you concerned about the rising number of candidates, both in this election and people who may run in the future, who no longer say they will unconditionally accept the results of their respective elections as legitimate, including Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin here? And do you think that would have any effect in the midterm or foreshadowing the 2024 presidential election? Yeah, so there are a few funny things going on. One is Republicans are more doubtful and less confident about election results. They're less likely to believe 2020 was legitimate. Most Republicans, about 70% in surveys, say they don't believe Joe Biden was the rightful victor. That's a little surprising because 2020 was actually a really good year for the Republicans. Aside from losing the presidential election, 
a, a candidate who had actually lost the popular vote four years before was impeached twice. It's not so surprising that kind of person would lose a presidential election. Republicans actually made gains in the Congress, did pretty well down the ballot. It was a good year for the GOP when they had a troubled candidate at the top of the ticket. But there's no focus on that if it's all orbiting around Trump. Uh, going into this year's midterms, surveys also show Republicans are less confident that their vote will be counted correctly, that the results can be trusted. Republicans might have a really good election cycle in 22 and be doubtful about the results. I, I don't know how they'll put that together. That might be a combination that actually makes Republicans more confident in the system. Winning tends to do that. Uh, we tend to like the referees when our team is winning and tend to blame them when we're trailing. Uh, I think the bigger concern for me is that some people will be elected to office this year into positions that oversee the election process in 2024. And it's the presidential system, the appointment of electors in the states where there's most ambiguity and most room for election officials and elected officials to have discretion in shaping that process. Uh, there's a lot of pressure in swing states to do what the national party would like. So this is not in every state. It's in half, probably a half dozen states where some of these people might get elected and they will be swing states in 2024. Uh, there was a lot of creativity, I would say, among election deniers in 2020 that I didn't appreciate or didn't anticipate. Things like setting up slates of fake alternative electors who also tried to meet in their state capitals on the day that the actual electors were meeting. Uh, the lawsuits, the challenges in the Congress on January 6th. I'm not sure it will be those things that are done again in two years, but there will be some creative efforts probably to obstruct the election. And if there are allies in office who also don't believe in the system they're actually running, <laughs> then they may aid some of the protest or skepticism. Uh, you know, one, one thing I'll mention that might be helpful there where there might be some bipartisan compromise actually in Congress is after the election this year, when we're in the lame duck session before the new Congress comes in, there's a, a bipartisan group of senators working on reform to the Electoral Count Act. This is the late 1800s law in the United States that governs the process from election day right up to the January 6th counting of electors. It's a messy, badly written piece of legislation. It leaves a lot of room for shenanigans like we saw in 2020. Uh, but there's a very serious group of people on both sides of the aisle who want to fix that and fix it before we know who won 2024. Let's do it in advance when it doesn't have a partisan implication. So there are at least good signs that something might be fixed up at the federal level that will help put some guardrails in place, but it, it won't stop. I think a secretary of state or a governor who just doesn't want to certify the vote from their state, um, it probably ends up in lawsuits and courts and protests outside those buildings. On the same lines of seeing candidates like Kerry Lake who will say they won't potentially accept the results of the election if they lose and things like that, we've also seen a trend of voter intimidation where we've had people camping out at drop boxes for ballots and things like that. Do you see that having any sort of tangible effect on these midterms? Yeah, so the Arizona stories about militias basically arming themselves and hanging around drop boxes is really problematic. I think it's been localized there. I have not heard of that problem happening elsewhere. There are a number of national stories about groups training election observers to go into polling places on election day, really scrutinize and get involved in the election process, maybe disrupt the process, challenge voters. There actually been some challenges already in Georgia and some other places. Uh, those kinds of stories run every couple years and usually don't materialize. These groups are just not organized enough and they don't recruit people in sufficient numbers. 
Uh, often people who are really upset, who don't trust elections, who want to go in and be an observers, while they're getting trained or while they, when they show up at election places, realize it's a really boring clerical process. There's nothing <laughs> secretive or problematic happening. It's sort of a dry, sterile process of voters coming in and checking in and getting their ballots and casting them. And it's not a, not a lot to observe, actually. Um, but this year is probably going to be different than those other cycles because the stop the steal movement, the belief in 2020 being rigged is fueling a lot of these groups. I, th I think it's just something to watch. We don't know um, in what states and to what degree some of these you know, really aggressive observers might show up. Fortunately, election officials are real professionals and welcome eyes on their work and would be happy to have observers who are following the law to come into polling places and watch what's happening. And that tends to take the edge off of those kinds of movements. But we'll see. There, it may be election day kind of intimidation or challenging efforts. It might also be protest after the election, like what we saw in 2020. So whole whole range of problematic things that could happen. I think as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything we haven't touched on yet that you think would be important for people to know going into these midterms? Yeah, I just want to remind people there are a lot of things on the ballot besides the governor and the senator. In most states, it is the governor's race and the Senate race is getting all the attention, and that is right. It's going to affect everything in our lives. But even here in Wisconsin, there's an attorney general's race on the ballot. In Madison, there's a sheriff's race on the ballot. There are some issues to vote on in Dane County on, uh, I think, abortion and marijuana. So there's just a lot of things. If you don't vote in Wisconsin in your state, there are going to be a lot of other things to vote on as well. So pay attention to those state and local races, too. They really do matter maybe more immediately in all of our lives. So after talking about some of the erosion of democracy and things like that, let's try to end on a positive note. So much of what we talk about when it comes to elections in the aftermath of the 2020 election specifically and efforts to change voting laws around the country is very negative. Is there anything you can share with us that makes you optimistic about the future of the electoral process nationally over the next several election cycles? Well, let's see. Um, we have survived 2020. Uh, and it was super challenging. There was a public health pandemic and there were candidates and politicians and groups challenging the election system itself. And there was an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on the day that the electoral votes were counted. And the system survived that somehow, setting record high voter turnout. So I can't promise that that will be replicated. But somehow the institutions and good people in good positions were just enough to get us through that. So that's a hopeful sign. There's a lot of voter engagement. We're going to have very high levels of turnout this year. Again, this will be the third election cycle in a row where we might set a record. Uh, that's a good thing. Talking to students who are going to be our future, the future bulk of the electorate makes me hopeful. Um, looking at surveys and what people believe and think is, is sometimes scary, but I'm really hopeful to see the group of young people who are going to take over for the rest of us in a couple of decades. Um, those are good signs. Thank you so much for being with us today and answering all these questions that we have. I think this was really helpful and informative. Thanks for having me. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.